I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So during my talk last month, I mentioned how the Buddha recognized that all the things that we do, all the different activities that we do in, in body and speech and mind are all for the sake of happiness. And I suppose that I could say more on that that the Buddha recognized that we are striving for happiness all the time, that a lot of this desirous activity that we do is seeking happiness out, and that the path that he discovered and the path that he shared leads to happiness, that leads to true happiness, that leads to peace. So with that in mind, I wanted to discuss this time of year, this, uh, how do they say it, the happiest time of the year, the happiest season of all. There's all these different ways of talking about this time of year. And I was struck at how weird this time of year is for us, uh, especially those of us in the United States. but. Uh, I think in, in many places during this season as it leads up to Christmas and uh, and New Year. And I was with my wife and we were shopping at uh, Whole Foods yesterday. And we were just buying up a few things to uh, to bring to my sisters later today. And I was struck at how many people were in the store, the crowds and the, the kind of frantic energy that I notice around this time of year, especially anytime I step out of the house, there everyone is just rushing around, all filled up with this all, all this energy and, and movement and excitement. And it could seem a little chaotic. At least it seemed that way as I was just trying to buy some like cheese and stuff at Whole Foods. Just the crazy energy of it all. And it made me think about how, you know, we have Thanksgiving in November, and, and here's this this holiday where, and the way this is the way I've heard it described before by other people, this one day where we try to be grateful for all the things that we have. And then the very next day, we rush out and trample each other to get more things. And it just seems like that energy per perpetuates itself all into the month of December. All the different energy going on as we step outside and all the frantic buying and consuming and rushing around that happens. And perhaps you have noticed it too. I don't think it's just me that notices it. I'm certainly not the first person to comment on consumerism. But I think that we all notice how everything feels during this time of year even just driving on the roads, entering into stores, if we go to restaurants, if we go anywhere where there's a lot of people right now, there's this 
this uh, anxious energy that's about. And it's so funny to me that we spend the, the whole year uh, commenting on how fast the year goes by, and we try to find ways to slow it down. And then it seems that once we get to December, we just rush right to the finish line. So much busyness right all the way in until, until New Year's. And it's such a strange thing that we do, culturally, that we've accepted. And it made me think back to uh, the way winter has been perceived in other cultures. And it might not seem like it's winter here in Southern California. I know that the rest of the country has it much differently, suffering through actual weather. You know, here in Southern California, winter is mostly just a, a break from the heat. But you know what? I'll take it. But winter in a lot of other cultures is a time of reflection. You know, it's a time of, of looking inward, of going into the home and not traveling around a lot, not venturing out a lot, not trying to find and search and consume, but to be inside and to rest and to contemplate and to renew oneself. For a lot of cultures, uh, winter is much the same way the, the rains season or the monsoon season is in, uh, in other parts of the world, like India, where, where the Buddha lived during his lifetime. And the rains became the time when people would do the same. They, they would hunker down and survive the monsoons, but they would also make it a time of spiritual activity rather than the kind of usual activity, the kind of busyness the way people are and the way people live and would spend time on that kind of inward search that inward search for happiness so in light of that it does seem odd that here we are in winter this perfect time to be more introspective to turn inward and to really uh, evaluate the way we're living our lives and the way we're searching for happiness, and yet there's this uptick of activity that happens every year. And it seems that in some ways we got a break from it last year, you know, because of, uh, of the pandemic. The pandemic, in, a, in one way, has been one long winter that we're still uh, living through. You know, it's, it's not over yet, although we're finding newer and more novel ways to, to cope with it. I will say that yesterday, while I was in Whole Foods, it felt like there was no pandemic whatsoever. You take away all the masks everyone was wearing, it seems like everyone's right back down to business. The same kind of busy way people were living before, they're living it now. Right now. We've just gone right back to it. And the pandemic, of course, is a lot of things that we could discuss. But what it also seemed to be, what it could have been, possibly, was an opportunity to reevaluate how we live. And instead, what it seems like is happening, we're rushing right back to the way we lived before. Everyone wants that normal that they're striving for again. So in light of that, today I want to talk about two themes. Simplicity as one theme, and contentment as another. 
and to see how they relate to the way we usually spend our winters here in America. Because I would say that they're often not about simplicity or contentment. Now, the, the first one can be difficult to talk about because these days, when we talk about simplicity, it gets uh, caught up with a lot of other stuff like, uh, like minimalism. They got really popular. And uh, that became very trendy for a while. Might still be trendy now. You know, the kind of uh, stuff you can find on Netflix now. You know, the minimalists. And, uh, you know, there's this documentary they came out with where these guys obnoxiously go around telling everyone how they're huggers. They don't shake hands, and so they invade people's space all the time. But simplicity, uh, in a Buddhist sense, is more than just making sure you don't have a lot of towels cluttering up your closet. You know, simplicity ends up being um, a way of life, a way you structure your mind, a way that you think of the path, even. Because we have all of these teachings from the Buddha, especially in the, in the Pali Canon and the Theravada tradition, there's so many, so many teachings and so many ways of looking at the, the same concepts over and over again, different ways. We end up with all sorts of different qualities that we examine. But all of that always are just directions, fingers, actually, pointing us back to ourselves, to our own minds, our own bodies. And specifically, two ways of thinking that the, the Buddha talked about in terms of his own development and his own liberation. Looking at things in terms of their skillfulness and their unskillfulness, looking at things in terms of what are conducive to our long-term welfare and happiness and those that are not. And if we live our lives with that kind of simplicity, then that means that all the things that we do and all the things that we say and all the things that we think can be in alignment with those markers with those benchmarks, looking at them in terms of skillfulness and unskillfulness, which is itself a kind of simplicity. And when we do that, we can look at how we go about our day, what we occupy our time with, and what things we do. And when we're presented with times like this, when we might have the possibility or the opportunity for introspection and for moving inward, turning inward, it's precisely what should be done. It's certainly what could be done. And it's tough to live with that kind of simplicity because of the nature of the mind, because of what we're used to doing. The Buddha talks about how we have a tendency to proliferate, that one thought usually doesn't live on its own, but usually gives way to more thoughts, more perceptions, more intentions. They give rise to feeling, form, everything else. It just piles on and grows very quickly. And that ends up being precisely why we meditate. It's why we have the practice of meditation to begin with, so that we have a chance to slow down and observe 
and more than observe, train. Train the mind towards this simple way of thinking. What is conducive right now to my long-term welfare and happiness? What is conducive to the long-term welfare and happiness of others? And we need to do that slowing down to really be able to see what actually is to our benefit, our long-term benefit. And that can't happen when we live very busy, hectic lives. I've talked the last few months about conduct and sila and different concepts like uh, like shame and uh, and concern. I've used other translations. I think compunction. But one of the other ways of looking at sila, one of the ways of translating sila is not as virtue or morality or ethics, but habits, which might be a helpful way of looking at sila, at looking at the kind of training that we do in terms of our conduct, as the kind of habits that we have throughout the day. What ways we might be able to simplify our lives to make our lives more conducive to the mental training that happens in meditation. Now, when I speak this way, I recognize in myself, so it must be in, in others too, or it might be in others too, this, uh, this hesitancy to admit that the path requires that much. Because one of the things that we like most, I think, the world over, but especially in the culture that I've been raised in, is simple solutions. Things that require minimal effort. Things that require little sacrifice or no sacrifice at all. And it's hard to think of the path as something that requires giving things up or missing out on things or sacrificing things or changing the way we live, which is one of the themes I talked about last month. The, the very concept of taming your mind without taming your life and how such a thing is not really possible. That to tame your mind requires taming your life. And times like this give us opportunity to do that kind of work, to do that kind of training. Which on its own would be quite, we might say, stoic if it really just came from an attitude of, of sacrificing, of giving up, of relinquishing, without getting something else in return. So this is where contentment comes in as an important factor, an important thing to cultivate. Because if we were only giving things up and not getting anything back, or at least not having the right kind of attitude about the things that we do keep in our lives, then it would seem as if it wouldn't be worthwhile wouldn't be worth doing. So contentment becomes important because we have to look at the things that we do have and see how we can be content with them as we can cultivate the path. At the very, very minimum, at the very basic, we have requisites like having clothing, having food, having shelter, having medicine. But it's more than that. It's all the things that we have in our lives that we can be contented with 
as meeting our physical needs so that we can then practice on this mental discipline. More than contentment, we can talk about cultivating a sense of, of gratitude for the things that we have and the opportunities that we have and what we've been given. And it so happens to be that we were born in a time and place where we have the Dhamma, we have the Buddha's teachings. We have the ability to practice the path and we have so much access to the path, so much access to the Buddha's teachings that several centuries ago wouldn't have even been possible. And if we can be contented with that and grateful for that, then we approach the path in a different way. Because the path, because it's about happiness, because it actually leads to peace and true happiness, it has the potential to become the most important thing we do with our lives which puts everything else in our lives in a completely other category or at least a certain a different way of looking at them a different way of relating to them which is so antithetical to the consumerist way that we view things or in the very self-centered way we can view things and I often reflect on that because when it comes to spiritual paths we can often get sucked into thinking about what we get out of it what we receive from it while doing very little while offering very little which doesn't come from a place of of gratitude which doesn't come from a place of contentment which doesn't come from a place of peace. If we can stand contented with what we have in our lives right now, without rushing out for more experiences, more things to buy, more things to have, more things to see, and can realize that we have the means for happiness within us, we have the ability to produce happiness within us by turning inward and cultivating good qualities, noble qualities. I apologize, I lost track of my, my thoughts for a moment. My wife came into the room to mess with the thermostat and it completely threw me off, so give me a second. <laughs> so speaking on the theme of contentment, which is, is more than just being content, which 
And the reason why I say that is because we can often confuse contentment with being complacent. It's not that we don't want to change our lives. The fact of the matter is, the entire enterprise of the Buddhist practice is about change, is about transformation. But we often assume that change and transformation comes from external means, external things. If only life was this way, if only I had these resources, if only I lived in this place, if only I lived in that time, if only I had this kind of job, if only I had this kind of family, if only, and it ends up being outwardly focused. You know, if only I read the right kind of book, if only, if only. And it can, it can be the story that we tell ourselves that all the things in our lives, if only they were the right way, we'd be happy. We'd have enough. I had to bring up to someone the other day that in Buddhist cosmology, even those who have the good karma to be born in heaven, to live all the way up in lofty realms where everything is provided for them. They have all the right food, all the right clothes, beautiful shelter to live in, big mansions and palaces. They have eons to live, you know, hundreds of years as divine beings. That from the Buddha's perspective, even they live in samsara. Even they live, if not experiencing pain, is still experiencing impermanence and still in experiencing uh, loss, transformation, change. Nothing's fixed for them, even in that, in that regard. And so part of contentment, in a way, is related to equanimity in the face of the fact that as human beings, we ourselves live with even more flux, even more change, even more instability and inconstancy. Meaning that oftentimes the things that we think externally should provide happiness don't, or at least can't long enough in comparison to what the Buddha says is our long-term happiness. The peace that comes from real relinquishment real letting go, the abandoning of craving, the abandoning of desire, cutting away the roots of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so that means that contentment, being tied to gratitude and being tied to equanimity, means that we can stand contented with these imperfect, inconstant, things that we have in flux, the way of our life right now. Not as a long-term solution. The path itself is the long-term solution to happiness. But for the time being, we have the ability to, in this moment, ask ourselves, for the sake of my practice, for the sake of my development, for the sake of my cultivation, do I have enough clothing? Do I have enough food? Do I have enough shelter? Do I have enough medicine? That's enough to practice with. And so that means that 
when we look beyond those requisites, we begin to look at other aspects of our lives, or at least we can look at other aspects of our lives, and apply these same factors or same qualities or same lenses that we're looking at in terms of simplicity and contentment to the people that we have in our lives or the kind of livelihood that we have or the kind of way we occupy ourselves outside of our ability to be at home or be at a monastery and meditate. Simplifying our lives and living contented in that simplicity, uh, I've had I've heard described by one teacher as making us outsiders, making us people that live differently from others, and that is true. And for a long time, that was precisely the kind of thing that bothered me when I was trying to be a, a good Buddhist and a good meditator in my 20s, I really felt the, the pain of missing out, of sacrificing my time and my entertainment and my fun and my relationships to go off and meditate, to go off and be by myself, to live secluded, or to seek out different communities and be with them. And there is this tendency to think that we can have it all, that we can do it all, that there is this way of relating to things, and that's enough. Several months ago, uh, I shared uh, a quote that highlighted this difficult issue, where it's, it's actually not about giving things up. It's actually not about sacrificing or relinquishing. It's simply a matter of, of having a different perspective about things. And that can be a very enticing way of looking at the issue. Well, it's not so much that alcohol is an issue, that it leads to, to heedlessness and everything. It's, it's your attachment to the alcohol. If you weren't attached at all, you could do 12 shots of tequila right now, and it'd be just fine. You wouldn't be sick or do, do anything silly or rash, right? People apply these ways of thinking all the time. This, this idea that if we uh, simply weren't attached, we can live the life we've always wanted to live, which is itself its own kind of clinging, its own kind of attachment, its own kind of delusion to think that it's only a matter of our, of our perspective or only a matter of, of not holding things too tightly. One of my teachers brings up the fact that living this way we're constantly training ourselves to give up lesser forms of happiness for higher forms of happiness. Giving up lesser kinds of delight for higher kinds of delight. And one of the most beautiful ways he's talked about it is trading candy for gold in terms of its worth, in terms of its impact. And all of this can be a hard sell. 
all of this can be when we're not in the right mental space for it quite jarring uh, unsettling it might even seem untrue that when the Buddha talks about contentment the Buddha isn't talking about internal contentment about the qualities of the mind but he often means contentment in the sense of the lives out that we have outside in terms of not only the the requisites but also just the state of the world uh, the state of politics the state of all those things and that's where we can be contented for a time provisionally as we work on different qualities but the contentment doesn't necessarily re uh, relate to the qualities that we're developing on the inside in terms of our skillfulness and unskillfulness that can be quite unsettling to hear especially these days where we're often given a completely different message about the path where it's about complete and total acceptance of who you are and whatever thoughts are running around in the mind and it can be hard to hear uh, a strong maybe even bitter medicine to hear that the Buddha didn't encourage that kind of contentment didn't really encourage that kind of equanimity that the training itself this path that we're on uh, has a goal and has something that we're we're working towards and that means that we can't sit contented with where we are in our development on the path that if the Buddha had approached the issue with that same attitude, he never would have become the Buddha. He never would have achieved awakening. He never would have achieved his true and final liberation, the same one that he promises us, which he related to true happiness, true peace. And at first, we have to take that a, a, a bit on faith, that that's, that's a, a true thing, that... That is a real result of the path. That's a, a real thing that happens from developing the whole Eightfold Path, but especially meditation. Because we can often think, unfortunately, that uh, meditation is just a, a calming technique. Or it, it helps quiet the mind just a bit, just enough to get on with day-to-day with -day living. Or it's a, a kind of, of medicine for... Uh, depression or, or anxiety or anything like that. There's a lot of ways of relating to it as, as psychotherapy. But when we read the, the, the Pali Suttas, when we read the Nikayas, and when we study with teachers who have practiced what's in those suttas, what's promised is so much more than that. Such, such more than that but also requires living in a fundamentally different way and relating to the mind in a fundamentally different way. So to bring it back to this discussion and, and why now, why bring all this up now? It really is because I've always thought about winter as, as the quiet time, the reflective time, as the, uh, the, Western version of uh, the rains time, the monsoon time. Because for much of the United States, at least, uh, we don't get a lot of monsoons. I know parts of Arizona and places like that, they do. But 
the rest of us, winter is the time that we've got when there is the, at least the chance for things to begin slowing down, uh, making space where some of us may even have time off from work, possibly. But there can often be a lot of familial commitments to those of us who are Westerners and still have family that practice you know, different religions and have different holidays. And there's a lot of responsibilities that go into it. A lot of buying of gifts and receiving of gifts and a lot of, a lot of things that end up accumulating. And I remember Christmases of my past just looking at all the new stuff I've got and have to figure out where it goes. So in light of that, it is important to think on simplicity, how we might be able to simplify our lives in a greater sense than just the things that we could give up, the things that we could remove from our homes, although that's important too. But also simplicity in terms of how we relate to our own lives, how we live our lives, pairing that down to what the Buddha taught in terms of skillfulness and unskillfulness. And then in terms of contentment, realizing that we can look outward to the things that we have in our lives and measure them in terms of how conducive they are to the path and when they are having a sense of gratitude for them and when they're not perhaps having a sense of equanimity and recognizing that we can change things so that they are more conducive to living the path and then relating this to our ultimate goal the ultimate goal is peace cessation the elimination of desire the elimination of of craving of aversion, of delusion. That that is the goal that the Buddha had in mind, not only for his monastics, but also for lay people. And so that is why I bring it up now, during this time, which is, has become such a symbol of all the things that we need and all the things we want and all the things that we ask for and all the things that we think are going to make us happy in this happiest season of all. And so it is for our benefit to think on what real happiness is and what are the real sources of happiness what are the causes for happiness and if we're able to view things in the way the Buddha did then we're able to see that the means for happiness are precisely what he prescribed that the qualities that we're seeking to cultivate that the path we're seeking to develop are precisely those causes for happiness precisely those causes for peace. And it will often be the case that it means that internally, at least, in developing these qualities, we really can't rest on our laurels or sit back thinking that this is enough, but to continue striving and working. The contentment is for everything else outside of our, our control or perhaps the things that we can change but just enough. But internally, we're always putting effort forward, putting one step in front of the other, really walking a path. So in light of that, I will try to uh, end on what I think is, is a quote that will sum this up since I'm having difficulty finding my own words today. So this is a quote from, from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who says, The Buddha wasn't the sort of person to tell you to practice without a goal or without any gaining mind. 
He was very clear about the fact that we are trying to gain concentration. We are trying to gain discernment. We are trying to gain release. He would often use images of investment. You invest your time and energy in things that will give a good return. So success is a valid issue. We're here because we do not, we uh, do want to gain peace of mind. We want to gain a genuine happiness, a happiness that doesn't disappoint, a happiness that doesn't place any burdens on anybody, a happiness that causes no harm to anyone. That's a noble goal. And so we should do our best to focus on the causes that will enable us to succeed in attaining that. So with that in mind, I will apologize for the uh, quality of this Dharma sharing, but I hope that it was still something useful for you. And uh, I can only say that I myself am continuing to work on my own simplicity and contentment, and so I will try to be contented with the quality of this talk. <laughs> Thank you.